Our scripture lesson comes to us today from the book of Romans uh, in chapter 4, and Paul is illustrating his point about the righteousness of faith through the life of Abraham. And today, as we consider together the sacraments and the sacraments in broad from the Belgic Confession, we will rely on some of the teaching Paul gives to us here. You can find this on page 828 in the Pew Bible that's handy, or if you brought your own, Romans 4 will begin in verse 9. Is the, this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share, who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believe, believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. And our Catechism lesson comes to us today from the Belgic Confession. We'll be uh, looking at Article 33, and it's a shorter article, so I'm going to ask that you would recite it with me today. Dear Christian, what do you believe? We believe that our good God, mindful of our crudeness and weakness, has ordained sacraments for us to seal His promises in us, to pledge His goodwill and grace towards us and also to nourish and sustain our faith. He has added these to the word of the gospel to represent better to our eternal senses both what He enables us to understand by His word and what He does inwardly in our hearts, confirming in us the salvation He imparts to us. For they are visible signs and seals of something internal and invisible, by means of which God works in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So they are not empty and hollow signs to fool and deceive us, for their truth is Jesus Christ, without whom they would be nothing. Moreover, we are satisfied with the number of sacraments that Christ our Master has ordained for us. There are only two, the sacrament of baptism 
and the Holy Supper of Jesus Christ. It's perhaps to us an odd article to include. Uh, if you are interested in the sacraments, you probably don't start at Article 33. You probably go to baptism or the Lord's Supper, to the article you're actually interested in. We tend to treat confessions, I tend to treat confessions as encyclopedias, and so you look up the entry you want, you go to it, and you read it. Um, and when you do that, you skip articles like 33. Maybe you're wondering, why do we have Article 33? Why not just include this material with baptism or in the Lord's Supper? Or maybe you're wondering, yeah, I get why we have 33 historically. Why doesn't Luke just fold it in to baptism or the Lord's Supper? Why are we treating it and slowing down here at Article 33 instead of just moving on to baptism? Uh, maybe we should pause and think about the category of sacraments. That's what the Belgic Confession forces us to do when we read it through, and I think it's helpful for us. Um, we'll lay groundwork today for next week and the week after as we talk about baptism and the Lord's Supper, talk about the sacraments. And from the historic perspective, our Reformed perspective, right, there were two groups uh, at the time of the Belgic Confession who disagreed with what we just heard. You have, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. That's the primary response they have more sacraments. They don't necessarily understand sacraments this way. As pledges of grace, a sacrament in Catholic practice is something you can do. Uh, it's not only something that you receive. You got penance, marriage, holy orders, right? These are considered sacraments, and they're something that we do. And they are considered to impart some special grace to us. Um, there's also the Anabaptist system, where they were not baptizing infants, as we'll see next week. Uh, they were uh, prioritizing experience and prioritizing their response to what God has done and viewing the sacraments through that lens as well. And in that time, there was also this debate about images. It doesn't really show up in our Belgic confession, but it shows up in the Heidelberg Catechism in a very similar way. The sacraments are the visible word that God has given to us. And so, in response to the Anabaptists and the Roman Catholics, we have a robust teaching on the sacraments. This is where God shows us what He does. And so, we would be mistaken to not pause here and consider sacraments. We would be mistaken if we thought that no one today was confused about what these things are and what they do. And that's why we're starting this morning with Romans 4. Um, that was our catechetical text this morning, and we see there that language of sign and seal together. Um, it's in our catechetical lesson from the Belgic Confession, and we see it here. This is where we really get them tied together. But the passage here, as we all heard multiple times, uh, is about circumcision. Uh, once I was reading this uh, passage, one of our elders was with me, this was recently, reading this passage at a home visit, and we were out uh, in public, it wasn't actually at the person's house, and I did not realize how many times this text said circumcision until we're out in the open air and I'm reading it aloud at a table. That's what's being talked about here, the sign and seal. And we tend to do pretty well when we think about the sign. Um, when we look at circumcision, which is where we'll start, we see that circumcision, even in the Old Testament, signified more than one thing. We can start by viewing how 
Uh, it signified the curse. When it was given in Genesis 17, we read, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And so there, the sign of circumcision, of being cut off, you are also cut off from the people in a curse if you do not keep the covenant, expelled, removed from the types and shadows, from the covenant people. You break the covenant when you don't receive the sign. But there's also a blessing, and it's picked up throughout the prophets. It's uh, sometimes in the negative. In Leviticus, it shows up that they're not circumcised in the heart. But in Deuteronomy 30, and all of those great promises of blessing, it says that God will circumcise their hearts when He brings them back. And so we have this blessing as well, right? The sign that's being talked about here is the sign of Abraham's faith, the sign of blessing, and a sign of covenant curse. Receive the sign. Be a part of God's people. If you fail to do this, you will be cut off. And this is often this idea of the blessing where our Baptist brothers and sisters start misunderstanding the sacraments. When we talk about baptism and we say, you know, circumcision has replaced or has been replaced by baptism, um, they tend to think, well, no, 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 there's this blessing. The circumcision of the heart is what fulfills circumcision. I've had this discussion more than once. They fail to see the continuity, which we'll come back to. But this is the blessing that's signified. It's something that still happens to us even though we don't receive this sign, that Christ Himself circumcises our hearts. Uh, Paul picks up on this in Colossians 2, that we have been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. And while we often wrap our minds really easily around the sign, it's a picture, we get that as moderns. We'll talk about the other things signified in the other sacraments a little later. We often don't understand what it's being talked about here when it talks about sealing, right? Abraham was sealed. The sign is kind of in the background. The point here is that Abraham was sealed. His faith was sealed. Abraham's uh, righteousness was sealed in that he bore a mark. God had called him. He had made promises to him, but he made it personal to him and to his descendants. He set apart him and his house. It was personal. It was not abstract. And as we think about seals, we can think about seals like in a letter, an authenticating mark. You think of a signet ring or I have a, a friend from college who got his own signet little stamp that he would seal from time to time things with. It was a pledge that this is true. It was a unique representation. This comes from the sender. One of the things we find with ancient Hebrew texts is that they have seals on them. We'll find these letters that were rolled up in these clay uh, tubes and sealed. This is an ancient practice. But this gets extended. It's not just a sealing and a letter. It's a sealing of the truth of something. And it's not that a letter is being sent to Abraham, the covenant is being sent to Abraham with a seal on it, but Abraham himself bears the seal. This is what we see here. They know the terms. They also know the terms apply to them. They must bear that mark. They must bear that mark here, in this case, to enter into the covenant community. And if you fail to do this, you will not be a part of the covenant community. You will be exiled. That was what was happening. That was the function 
That was how, when this sign was administered. And we all now agree, including our Baptist brothers, that there's a sign for entrance into the community we belong to, into the church. We receive the sign of baptism to come into the covenant community. Even a Baptist would agree. So, while we have sign, seal, function of this sign, and with all of these signs, as we'll see, we also need to think back somewhat to that Old Testament context as we ask ourselves, what do sacraments actually do? And so, when we turn through our Bibles, we see again and again and again and again the idea of covenant. Over and over, we'll see it. Even as we divide the Bible, we talk about the Old and New Testaments. That's a word from Greek that means covenant, translating a Greek term with a, or a Hebrew term with a more specific Greek term, we get testament, a type of covenant. And so, we even divide the Bible based on this idea. It's everywhere. It's not an isolated feature. And we see that covenants are a major idea as we talk about sacraments. Um, we have, of course, uh, descended from the Reformation, as we read the Belgic Confession this morning, and the Reformers, they were, were Renaissance men. They were students. Uh, for example, I was looking, Calvin studied classical law for 18 months, ancient Greek law. He, this is why he learned Greek originally. He learned Koine to study law in France. And so, he did 18 months of this study. And this led to him and other Reformed people explaining the sacraments within some sort of legal covenantal framework. This is, of course, the origins of the term sacrament come from pledges in contracts in Roman law. And this idea is not only evident from a broader context, but it's evident in the Scriptures. When Calvin looked and saw the covenants of the Bible, he saw something that he already knew. He saw signs being applied to contracts. It's evident even in the language. In Hebrew, you don't make a covenant. That's how it's often translated. You cut a covenant, referring to those animals being split. You can think about Genesis 15. You cut a covenant. And so, the Reformers were perceptive. They picked up on this. They saw the parallels. They understood what was going on here. And in recent years, uh, more scholars have come to appreciate this as we found Akkadian, Aramaic, and other covenants. And what do they have? Signs and seals. It was a feature of ancient law. In one particular uh, instance, there's this treaty. Uh, it's on a big uh, monument carved in in stone. Um, it talks about an oath being taken by a lesser king, and the sign is these tiny wax figures being melted. So you will be if you fail to keep this covenant. There were signs and seals of the terms. The people, the parties had to watch and see and understand, be marked out. So the perceptive reformers were right to make this tie. When we understand signs and seals, we have to understand them in terms of covenant. And the Old Testament and the New Testament contain covenants. That's why we read about circumcision and the Passover as old sacraments, or baptism in the Lord's Supper in the new. And all of these biblical sacraments, they picture for us, signify for us, and seal for us Christ's own work, right? Circumcision, Passover, baptism, the Lord's Supper, they all 
signify and seal something that Christ endured and something that Christ will do for us. We already talked about how Christ was cut off from the land of the living, how He received the sign of circumcision, not just the sign, but the reality. He was suffering outside of the city. This is where Paul picks up on Him becoming a curse for us. But it also works in the circumcision of our hearts. That promise is true in us. Or in the Lord's Supper. Very easy, this one. We see Christ's body broken. We see His blood shed, right? He bears the terms. Broken. Blood poured out. But we also have a meal where He nourishes and feeds us based on His work, on His sacrifice. He nourishes. He sustains us. He's given for us. Or baptism. Jesus undergoes a flood. In Mark 10, He'll actually say, you can't bear the baptism that I am going to endure. You can't be baptized with my baptism. And he's talking about the wrath that is coming for him. But he also is the one who, all throughout the Scriptures we see, washes us clean, sprinkles us clean with his blood. Reminding us of Psalm 51, which we'll probably sing next week, that he washes us, he makes us white as snow. And when we think about the picture of Christ's work, when we think about the covenant context, the teaching of the Belgic Confession becomes clear to us. Only God, as the one making the covenant, can make the signs. We don't get to add to the contract. We don't get to add a codicil or an addendum and say, we want all these other signs. No, only God, only the treaty maker, only the high king gets to make those signs. We don't get to change the terms. And that's a good thing because the terms are a blessing for us. And that's really where I want us to close today. We have these sacraments. Abraham had this sacrament as a sign and a seal of the righteousness he had by faith. We have these sacraments because God has covenanted to be our God. We are His people. We can think about those covenant signs. We can think about those ancient treaties. It all seems fairly abstract. We tend to divorce the idea of legal from relational. Some people will complain. You all talk about covenant theology. I just want to believe in my relationship with Jesus. Well, the legal is relational. We see the Scriptures talk about us in both ways in the same, at the same time. Adoption is a legal reality that is a relationship. Or marriage, the church is the bride of Christ. It's a legal reality. It's a relationship. And that's true of us. That's why we have these sacraments, because God has covenanted to be our God. And so by faith we receive these sacraments. By faith we receive this covenant. We receive the spirit of adoption, as Paul will talk about in Romans 8. The pledge that we receive that this is true from God Himself are these signs, these seals. So we're the ones who are washed clean. We are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who are adopted. These are legal things, but they are relational things. They are great blessings to us. In our baptism, we are washed white as snow. In communion, we have a foretaste of that marriage banquet. God has pledged to be with us. And these sacraments are given for us. By them, God assures us of His work of His grace. He nourishes us. 
and faith and truth. Today, later today, you might have seen as you were coming in uh, that there's a long Lord's Supper form printed out. We're doing a longer form. We're giving more time to the supper this morning in our communion service. We're doing that because it's important. Because the supper nourishes our faith. God's signs that He gives to us seal us, assure us. Relish that time. God marks us out. He today will nourish and feed our souls. Remember back to your baptisms. God has marked you out. You're a part of His people and His community. He has marked you as His. It's the time when we come to these sacraments where we are reminded that we continue in our spiritual life not by what we do. This is one of the great things that the Reformed say about the sacraments. God's the actor. God does it, not us. And when we think about them as a, a part of how we continue in our spiritual life in this world, it reminds us that we continue not by our own strength. We continue not by something that we do and our striving. We need God to come from outside of us and tell us, this is true of you. Marked out, belonging to, to the high king, to the treaty maker, to God, our Father. And so, to close, I want to remind us, brothers and sisters, that this is true. God's work, His favor for us, it's true. He feeds and nourishes us by the body and blood of His Son. He will share a meal with us. We are invited to the table of our God, to the banquet. Before that, He washes us. He cleanses us white as snow. He pours His Spirit out upon us. So I implore you, as we think about sacraments, to remember our baptisms, to come to the table expectantly. If you have faith, if you're a member of Christ's church, you are welcome at the table, not because of any merit of your own, because Christ has washed you, because He's covered you, because He welcomes you. And we're welcomed as sons and daughters. We're welcomed as the bride of Christ. If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, we praise You for giving to us these signs and seals. We know that our faith is weak. We know that we struggle through this life, and we thank You for giving us something we can see and taste and put our hands on to assure us that this is true, that You have done it. We praise You for sending Your Son, that He might endure the flood of the penalty which was due to us. We, are, we praise You that Christ sprinkles us clean by His own blood, that He pours out His Spirit on us. We thank You that even today we are invited to Your table as members of Your church to eat gathered around as Your children, to be nourished in our souls by faith, by the Spirit, on the work of Christ for us. And so we ask this morning that you would pour out that Spirit upon us in an increasing member, uh, measure as we remember our baptism, as we eat and drink the sacrament. May you make us grateful for the work that you have done, that our faith may be sustained in this world as pilgrims, 
this world that is passing away. And we pray all this in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus, and by the Spirit. Amen.